Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn to Zechariah. The book of Zechariah. It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. It also happens to be the longest of the prophets. So if, if you're visiting with us the first time today, you're, you're catching the tail end of a, of a series that's taken us through the whole fall where we have been looking one at the, a group of books called the Minor Prophets. There's 12 of them. We've been looking at them one per week. These represent the, a, a collection that somebody put together because they thought that these books go together as if they're just chapters in one larger story. And we've been trying to get at what that larger story is and especially get at how that story prepares us for the coming of Jesus that's reported in the New Testament. Zechariah is one of the most important for understanding that because it, it is one of the last ones written before Christ comes. But Zechariah also poses some problems for us. Zechariah, as much as any of these minor prophets, is a book of prophecy in the way that we normally think about prophecy. And we've, we, we, we talked about this early on right at the beginning of the series when we were first introducing it, that a lot of times when we think prophecy, we go to like Revelation, lots of weird imagery and trying to interpret all the details of it to know what's going to happen in the future, like end of the world kind of stuff. We don't normally just think about what it actually is, which is simply a word from God to people calling for something, reporting what's going to happen, telling them what God is thinking or feeling what he's going to do, and calling on them for repentance. But Zechariah actually does fit the pattern that we normally associate with prophecy. It reads a lot like Revelation, and for that reason, it's really hard. For that reason, it's also a point of great fascination for us, right? I don't know if there's ever been a culture in, in Christian history that's ever been more fascinated with details about what's to come than American culture right now. I mean, from, from the millions of copies that left, the Left Behind series has sold to, uh, to guys like Harold Camping trying to predict the exact day that Jesus was going to come back to Hal Lindsey and the late great Planet Earth fascination of the 1970s. I think he was the guy who picked, who had 88 reasons Jesus was coming back in 1988. We could go on uh, with, with lots of examples. We're, we're fascinated by it. We want to know what's happening, and we want to know if there's reason to believe that these details in these books can give us a hint about what's coming. Now, I don't want to be condescending, uh, and, I, and I don't, you don't know where folks are coming from on this, those who are, who are really fascinated and like to pinpoint the details. But in my experience, it seems to me that the, the more specific you get in trying to pinpoint meaning in these images, where meaning isn't explicitly given to you by the book itself, the more certain you are to be dead wrong. And that's what makes reading Zechariah so hard. This is the most difficult prophet, I think, by far. And it's difficult for a lot of the reasons that have made the earlier prophets difficult. This one just amplifies those and extends them. It's difficult because it's not clear as you move from one section to another whether the prophet is talking about something that's already happened, something that's about to happen, something that's going to happen at the end of the world. It's difficult because it's tough to know, it's tough to follow the back and forth between prediction of judgment that's coming versus prediction of blessing and salvation and redemption that's coming. It seems to switch back and forth repeatedly without any kind of coherent structure. And on top of all that, it's tough to understand because there are really, really strange details littered throughout this book. There are visions of things like lampstands and floating bands of horses and chariots patrolling the earth, almost J.R.R. Tolkien style. There are, uh, there are images of... of of wickedness personified as a woman put into a basket and flown out of the out of the nation by two other women who are also somehow storks. 
there are images like this all through Zechariah, and they're, they're really hard to get at. And it, and it adds a whole other layer of, of danger to us as we approach it. But it's worth the work. It's worth the work. Because there is no book that I know of cited more often, perhaps other than maybe Isaiah, cited more often by the authors of the New Testament than Zechariah. The earliest Christians saw something here that they thought prepared us perfectly for Jesus. So what we're going to do is try to understand what that is. We're going to come at these images not as some sort of coherent, logical argument. Like, like I, I tend to read all of the Bible as if it was written by the Apostle Paul. You know, with nice steps in his arguments and, and syllogisms of this, 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 therefore this. This kind of prophetic text is not meant to be read that way. These images provide more, almost like a mosaic, just random bits of color that as you read the whole, create impressions in you that point you to something else. We're going to do our best to try to read them that way. Not to pick apart all the individual details where the text doesn't do that for us, but to try to get a sense from the whole about what's coming. Zechariah offers us some crucial insight into why Jesus matters and into how Jesus serves as a fulfillment of everything Israel's story had been building to, and how Jesus is the only solution to the, to the problems of all of humanity. Zechariah comes to Israel at a really volatile time. He prophesied after the judgment had already come on him that the earlier prophets predicted. And then after they had already come back from Babylon. They were judged. They were conquered by Babylon. They were taken to Babylon. And now they're starting to come back. And that's where Zechariah hits them. But he hits them at a time when they are, they are, they are the definition of insecurity. They are basically a puppet regime of some other foreign power. They have no walls, no fortresses, no army. They have a ruler, but he's basically just a governor who rules on behalf of some distant emperor. This is where God's promises in Zechariah come to them. Even now, the question is what will keep the judgment that came before from coming again? If, all, if Israel enjoyed all the advantages they enjoyed, the law prophets, their king, and they still turned from God and brought judgment on them? What's going to keep that from happening again now when they don't even have all of those advantages that they had before? That's the question I think we can see hanging in the air for, the, for Israel as Zechariah confronts them here. What has changed? I mean, if Israel's story has proven anything to this point, it's that any deliverance from the effects of sin, any restoration of the world that God created, can't depend on the faithfulness of God's people. It can't. Otherwise, it's a lost cause. Israel had every chance, and they failed every time. And we are foolish if we don't recognize that we wouldn't have done any different if we'd have been in their shoes. So Zechariah, what Zechariah promises to us is a solution to all human problems that's not going to depend on the faithfulness of God's people, but that depends and, on, and is accomplished exclusively by God himself. Here's the point of Zechariah. God alone accomplishes salvation, and God does it through Christ alone, because Christ alone is both priest and king. Christ alone is both priest and king. What we're going to do in Zechariah is unpack that notion. Now, normally, this is where I'd ask you to stand up and we read, but because Zechariah is 14 chapters long and there's not any one central passage we're going to look at today, I'm going to let you sit. We're going to honor God's word through the way that we listen rather than through our standing. I want to look at Zechariah in three, three steps. Three steps. 
first what it is that Zechariah is promising, what the restoration of the world is going to look like. He promises a kingdom that hinges on peace and purity. Then I want to look at the main innovation that Zechariah introduces, the main thing that he gives us, the new twist on that old prophetic picture of a coming time of peace and purity is that it's going to come through a ruler who will be both priest, purity, and king, peace, and security. And then we'll step back and we'll do our best to try to cut through all the distance and time and culture that separates us from this book and see what it's like to live now as citizens of a kingdom that's here but not yet. That's where we're headed in Zechariah. So first, the kingdom of peace and purity. Zechariah itself divides pretty, pretty noticeably into two sections. First, uh, first section is chapters 1 through 8. Second section is chapters 9 through 14. They're, they read a lot differently, uh, a lot of different vocabulary, different concepts that come up. And the main difference is that the first section in 1 through 8 hinges on a series of eight visions that would have fit, fit right at home in Daniel or Revelation. And then 9 through 14 hinge on some passages predicting a coming ruler. So in the first section, these visions that hinges on these eight visions, the main images that come through for all the obscurity that is in the, is in the de- uh, all the details... The main images that come through is that there's a new day dawning, that it's a day of hope and rest, a day of redemption and restoration, that it's an era that God is himself will deliver, and, and that it is going to hinge on him delivering the two things that Israel thought that they could get somewhere else and that their history proved very tragically was not possible. It was going to hinge on God delivering peace and purity, peace and purity. The story of Israel at this point had been about a failure to protect themselves, a little nation surrounded by lots of bigger nations who were enemy powers, and Israel's inability to do anything to make themselves stable. They they call on a king for that purpose, and their kings just lead them further down down the spiral towards their own destruction. Israel turned to idols of their more powerful neighbors, thinking they could make them more secure, and, and that didn't work. It just brought judgment. It's a story of insecurity. And it's a story of Israel's people failing to obey the commands that God had given them, bringing themselves down through their own sin. What they've lacked was peace, security from external threats, and purity, security from internal threats, the threat of their own sin. Those those two things, freedom from external threats, freedom from internal threats, are what's promised in the first section of Zechariah. Now, there, uh, we could spend uh, an entire semester, we could spend a year, we could spend, I don't know, however long we wanted to, unpacking all of that in each of the different visions that comes out in the first part of Zechariah. I'm not going to do that. I, I just want to help point you to the fact that these images are coming up in those visions and then get at the heart of the visions, which are right in the middle. Here's what I mean. If you start reading in, in chapter 1, where, where the first vision is, and goes all the way through the end of chapter 6, what you're going to come across as you make your way through those, is lots of references to God judging those who had conquered Israel, their, their main threats, of God making his people secure. There's this one vision of Jerusalem as a city without any walls because it's a city where God is in the midst of them and God himself makes them secure. And it describes God himself as a wall of fire around the city protecting them. And it, def- and it, and it suggests that anyone who, who touches them will be touching the apple of God's eye. These beautiful images of God's commitment to the peace and security of his people come through these, these, uh, these visions. 
But the best way to understand that this is where, that these two things, peace and purity, are where the kingdom will center as it comes. The, the, the best indicator is not just the fact that those ideas come up throughout these visions, but that the visions themselves turn on those ideas. Now, bear with me. I'm going to get a little more technical than I normally would in talking about the Hebrew literature. But, but I think that, that, that understanding where the, the author was coming from is a, a key to helping us connect with the message of Zechariah. In English literature, if you want to make a point, you wait to the end, right? And everything builds to it, and there's a big reveal or a twist or some sort of culmination of the story. And, and that's where you find—if you want to know what the story was about, chances are it's going to be there at the end. Hebrew literature did that some too, but they also had another technique that they liked to use. And it was a technique that you might call a chiasm. I think that's the, the word that's normally used for it. And it would, there would be a, a number of different isolated elements, so in this case eight different visions— and they're organized as a mirror images of each other so that it starts with vision number one, and vision number one will correspond to vision number eight. The vision number two will correspond to vision number seven, vision number three to vision number six, and so on. And if you want to know what the main point of the sequence is, you go to the middle. That's where it is. So in this case, vision four and vision five. And when we go to the middle and look at vision four and vision five, what we see are visions about the peace that comes through the ruler God was predicting and the purity that comes through God's act of cleansing his people. I want to look at those two visions in detail just for the sake of time because I think that they help us get at the whole that's being described in this section. Everybody still with me so far? Nod yes if you are. I'm getting about two-thirds yeses. Others of you, we're, we're, we're charging ahead. Turn, if you will, to, uh, to chapter 4. Verses 6 and 7. Chapter, uh, chapter 4 introduces a vision of a golden lampstand. I'm not going to get into, I'm not going to read the entire vision. It's, it's details. A lot of them that are given are not interpreted for us, and so they, they won't be too much help to us. But the point of the vision, in this case, is actually given to us. And it represents a ruler who is established by God's power to provide the perfect peace that his people had lacked to this point. Freedom from all external threats. It's a ruler that's called here Zerubbabel. That was the guy who had been established by Babylon to rule over Israel when they returned. But the reason he matters, and he came up in Haggai as well last week, is that he's from the line of David. And all the prophecies that have looked ahead to a new day that's coming, it was going to have a lot to do with a ruler who comes through the line of David. So when you read Zerubbabel, it's not just that he's the governor. It's that he represents David's line. And here's the promise to him. Here's the promise to him. The angel uh, is talking with Zechariah. Zechariah is asking what these details mean. What do they, what do they represent? And the angel said to him in verse 6, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. You get the point of that image? The point of the vision is that this, the peace of God's people would be found in this ruler God had appointed for them. And that it would be a peace that God won for them, not by their own power, not by their own might, but by the power of his spirit in their midst. The reason we get we know he's talking about the, the peace that's been running all through these visions is that it, is this imagery of the mountain. I mean, what, a mountain is, is an image of, 
of something totally outside our control, bigger than us, immovable, unshakable. And placed before Zerubbabel, it represents an, un, an unconquerable ob, object, or uh, something, that, something that is an obstacle that we just can't get past. And in front of Zerubbabel, motivated not by his own power or his own strength, but by the Spirit of the Lord, all these mountains will be made into plains. They will be demolished in front of him. There is no threat that can that can threaten this kingdom. Does that? Hopefully, that imagery makes sense. It's imagery that Handel would draw from in his Messiah, predicting the coming of the Lord. One of the one of the one of my favorite um, arias in the in the production is is this one. Every mountain shall become a plain. It's an image of perfect peace. But peace alone is not enough. Peace alone is not enough for Israel. Because Israel's stability was threatened not just by outsiders, but by their own sin. And ultimately, that's what brought the, the, the wrath of God down on them through the instruments of Babylon and Assyria. It was not that God couldn't protect them from these powers. It was that Israel's own sin brought judgment on their own heads. So if this new kingdom, this new day that's dawning is going to be possible, it's got to have some solution to the problem of Israel's sin that, that throws the whole thing into question. That's what the other vision at the heart of the sequence represents. If you flip back to chapter 3, it's a vision that focuses on yet another leader. So if a vision of peace focuses on a king from the line of David, vision of purity from sin, a solution to Israel's sin, focuses on the priest who is who's appointed. Not just It's not just about him. It's about representing the people and their sin before God. That's why he's mentioned here in this vision. This is where the vision at the center of the sequence hits home. Read with me verses three through, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me, the angel giving the vision, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan, a word that means accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. You see the, the poignancy of that image? Just before this vision was more images of peace, of God protecting his people from all external threats. And then this image pops onto the scene. And you can almost see it. You can almost hear the words of Satan, the accuser. Yeah, you say you're going to protect them, but they are guilty. They are filthy. They are clothed with these garments that represent the best that they've got, and it's just rags. How can you protect someone who is this bad? How can you preserve them from external threats when internally this is who they are? Satan, the accuser, accuses Israel and he accuses them rightly in this vision. They are filthy. And yet the Lord rebukes him, rebukes the accuser. And he refers to his servant, Joshua, the high priest, who represents his people as a brand plucked from the fire. They were in judgment. They were supposed to be judged for their sins. And I have plucked them out of that fire. I've preserved them from that judgment. And then the image that points us forward to Jesus so much more clearly is the image of, of Joshua having his filthy garments taken off, 
removing what was his, all that he brought to the table, and replacing it with pure garments that are provided not by his own faithfulness, but by God himself. The image at the heart of the sequence of these visions is one of God taking care of his people's sin problem, not because they renovated their lives, but because he made them somebody other than what they were. He declared them to be pure, not because they were, but because of his word to them. Now, the question we should be asking is how is this going to be possible? How is it possible? How will God accomplish what he's promising to accomplish? I think a better way to ask that question would be who? Who's going to pull this off? If Zechariah presents us with anything that sets it apart and makes it valuable as, as part of the, the minor prophet's collection, it's, it's the image that it gives us of a coming ruler who's going to provide exactly what the first half of the book says is coming. Peace for God's people, protection from their enemies, security and purity, cleansing from their sin. There have been hints in the first half of Zechariah that there is a coming king. Remember, just at the heart of these, this sequence of visions, it hinged on a guy who represents the kingship and a guy who represents the priesthood. And yet, in, in discussing them, particularly discussing Joshua, there's a reference that Joshua is, is really only a sign of what's to come, of one that's called in Zechariah, my servant, the branch. And then in Zechariah 6, an image of the fusion of kingship and priesthood is given to us. In Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, again, Joshua is the one who's at the heart of it. This is not the Joshua, obviously, who, who led the people of Israel into the promised land. This is another guy. He's the high priest who leads them back to the promised land from Babylon. There, this, this, this word comes to Zechariah after the visions in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 6. And it's all about a crown that's formed and then placed in the temple. Do you see the fusion of the two images? A crown representing kingship, a temple representing priesthood and purity from sin. Here's what it says. And say to him, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be, get this, don't miss this, there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder. And here's the key. What this presents us with is a crown being fashioned from silver and gold and placed on the head of the high priest, Joshua. But, and, and it's predicted that the priest will rule on the throne, that these two offices are going to become one. And yet then Joshua is told to take off the crown and to set it into the temple as a reminder. A reminder of what? A reminder of who's coming. A reminder of who's coming. Chapters 9 through 14 give us some excellent images of the coming ruler that we, that was to be expected. The one who would fuse the peace of God's people and the purity of God's people into one role that he would fulfill. Chapter 9 gives us the first look at this coming ruler, the Messiah, the anointed one. 
in chapter 9, the image of kingship and the peace that he will provide is what's prominent. Look, if you will, flip over to chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. This should sound familiar to you. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The prediction is of a king coming with humble but unrelenting power. A king who is going to provide peace from, the in, from, from one corner of the earth to the other corner of the earth. This is the one that the visions of the first half of the chapter were talking about. This is who is, is being talked about when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey the, day, the days before he died. The rest of the chapter, of chapter 9 and, and then chapter 10, describe what his rule looks like. It describes him just cleaning house with all opposition to his people. It's, it's, they are chapters of judgment on behalf of God's people, not of God's people. And this king is the one who accomplishes it. But this is not where the imagery stops. There's more. There's more to, the, to Zechariah's portrayal of the one who's coming. And here is where the twist comes in that no one would have expected before. He predicts a coming king who is going to be pierced, and that his piercing would unlock cleansing for his people's sins. We have to go to chapter 12 to see this imagery. Flip to chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins with another image of salvation, God saving his people and protecting them, giving them peace, of God, of God protecting them by wiping out all who oppose them ridding the world of war, destroying, verse 9 says, all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So there's an end to that first part of the one who's coming, the king, the peace that he'll provide. But what about purity? What about the people's sins? Look at verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. Jump to verse 1 of 13. On that day, the day of the piercing, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. Do you see the image? The ruler who's coming would conquer as a king, not just through victory in battle, but through his own death. Somehow, this piercing opens up a fountain of cleansing for all, the, for all of God's people. And it is in him that they find themselves so secure that they don't need their idols anymore, that they don't even remember the things that they had once trusted in for security. They're cut off completely because this one gives them everything that they need. Surely this is the one that's hinted, out, er, hinted at earlier in Zechariah. In chapter 3, the, image, uh, the, the vision that we read earlier of Joshua the high priest, because there Joshua was told that he himself as the high priest was just a sign of a coming servant, the branch, who would, this is verse 9 of chapter 3, the one who would come to remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Hebrews tells us that 
In the former days, priests would offer sacrifices every day. But that now, through Jesus, one sacrifice is made for all time. It's not difficult to see why early Christians jumped onto this prophecy of Zechariah as a means of understanding Jesus and what Jesus meant. It's not difficult to understand what Jesus was talking about when he told the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, after he's raised from the dead, and he's walking along the road with these guys who think that he's still dead, and they don't understand that he's risen and why he had to rise again. And he's telling them that all of the, all of the law and the prophets point to me. This is what he was talking about. John quoted directly from this passage in Zechariah to explain the passion of Christ, what it was all about. And what's remarkable about Christian teaching about, on salvation and what's foreshadowed here in a way that, that surely the audience could not have expected is that the priest's role, the one who provides purity and cleansing from sin, and the king role, who provides absolute peace for his people, are one and the same. And that not only are they the same person, but they are finally accomplished in the same act. That somehow, against all odds and expectations, Jesus as high priest provides a once-for-all sacrifice through his death. And Jesus is crowned as king of the universe once and for all through his act of death. It's why when the Gospels report Jesus' death, when they tell that story, think back to the story. You've read them. They use language of sacrifice and kingship all through the stories to talk about Jesus' death. He's laying down his life for someone else, sacrifice. But he goes to it as the king of the Jews. Even Pilate's ironic charge against him placed above his head on the cross is that he is king of the Jews. And what is he ultimately crowned with but a crown of thorns? His death, we're meant to see as we read the gospel stories, is his coronation ceremony. Ultimately, the crown that Joshua set aside in the temple as a reminder was to be a crown of thorns, not a crown of silver and gold. Because in that one shamefully glorious act, Jesus perfectly fulfills the promises of peace and purity for his people. So what do we do with it? What does it look like to live a life of kingdom citizens who live in a, in a world that is now shaped by the one who perfectly fulfilled role, the roles of, of priest and king? I think I'd be remiss if I didn't first call you to repentance because that's what Zechariah does. The opening chapter of Zechariah, the first thing the prophet records is a call to return to the Lord. I look back to those who left him and were judged for it and a call to return from those wicked ways to submission to him. Ultimately, that's the same call that Jesus brought. First thing out of Jesus' mouth when he begins his public ministry is that the kingdom is here. Repent, turn from your sins, and believe in him. Ultimately, though, repentance is not just about stopping sin. That's a lifelong battle that we're all going to fight. It's about swapping sides. It's about changing allegiance. It's about trusting this king to do everything that you had been trusting other idols for. It's why Zechariah talks about this perfect act of cleansing, making it so that no, uh, the, the idols of the land are, no, are remembered no more. The call to repentance is a call to trust and to rest in Jesus as Lord. But I think we can go even further than that very quickly. And here I'm going to be very personal because when I read this text, the biggest barrier to me connecting with it 
is is uh, is that how, how foreign the, the language seems, how difficult it is to get our minds around it, to, to, to know what it is to live now on this side of Jesus, but before Jesus comes again and fully embraces and fully brings in the promises that are made here? What does it look like for us, particularly, to, to trust in God's peace when images of Babylon and Assyria weren't ever really that frightening to us at all? When you, read, when you read these promises of peace, it's a promise that God wipes out the enemies, right? But we don't really have enemies like that, not, not present on our minds. I mean, maybe, our, maybe our grandparents who lived through World War II thought about it like that. Maybe, maybe this resonated with them because they felt so many external threats to their security, but, but they don't seem to resonate with us nearly as much. So what does it mean to, to latch hold now to the promise, for instance, of God's peace that's coming? Let me just give you one example, the one that, that I often think about that, that really drives me and, and my outlook as a follower of Christ. Have you ever thought of the fact that, that ultimately the, the, the ultimate enemy that God has to protect us from, to give us peace from, is death itself? Do you ever think about your own death? Do you ever th- I know that sounds morbid, but I, I don't think it is. I think it's important. Are you afraid to die? I am, a lot. And Paul got that. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uses language that, that sounds like it could have been ripped right out of Zechariah. Language of, of Christ coming in to demolish all enemies, to purify God's kingdom, and to hand it back to him. This is in 1 Corinthians 15. And what Paul builds to in this language of, of Christ conquering all the enemies of his people and presenting the kingdom to his Father, what he builds to, what he says is that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I think we're reading Zechariah too narrowly if we don't see these promises of peace as a promise that all God's enemies, not just these particular historical enemies of Israel, but all the enemies of God's people, all threats to them and their security are demolished by by King Jesus. And the final enemy, Paul tells us, to be destroyed is death. So in the act of his piercing, And in his conquering that death through his resurrection, Jesus holds out to us a promise of a perfect peace, even over that enemy that modern science has come no closer to curing than the 16th century quest for the fountain of life. Death hangs over our heads, all of ours like a cloud, and there's nothing we can do about it. But the promise of Zechariah is that there's a king who has freed us from the final enemy to be destroyed. It's a promise that I think trivializes, or not trivializes, maybe that's the wrong word. It's a promise that puts into perspective and relativizes all the other fears that we face. You're afraid of being rejected? That fear comes, becomes much less potent when you think that you're going to live again because Jesus is alive now. Are you afraid of not having everything that you need? That's a justifiable fear. But that's a fear that gets far less potent when you think that Jesus lives now and therefore you will too and you don't have to fear death. Ultimately, you, it, it, it's, it's just a, a common sense that to, to focus on your death, to be, to be threatened with it, to, to know that you're going to die soon trivializes all the other things that used to dominate your attention. You just don't care about those things anymore. I wouldn't care if I, was, if I had a vivid sense of my own death. I wouldn't care that Auburn got demolished by Georgia yesterday, for instance. It trivializes the things that normally dominate your attention, right? It's just a, it's common sense. People say that all the time who have, who have brushes with death. If that's true, though, 
wouldn't it also be true that if you thought of the fact that you don't have to fear death because Jesus has conquered that enemy, that all the other little things that threaten you, that you fear, begin to fade away in light of that one great promise? I think that's what it looks like now as we wait for the kingdom to come, to latch on to the promise that God has accomplished peace for us, deliverance from all of our enemies. I think similarly, how do you latch on to this promise of purity, of cleansing of sin, especially since we all live with a constant battle with sin? it's, It's a daily thing. We're not conquering it. It's so present for us. How do we latch on to this promise that Jesus has conquered it once and for all as our priest king? and yet live in waiting for the kingdom in which that will be obvious and clear to us? How do we do it? What does it look like? I think, it sh- I think this image of the coming salvation shapes how we fight our battle with sin. It helps us to avoid two errors on opposite sides of the spectrum. On the one hand, some of us at some times are going to be prone to the error that we can, be- we can beat our sin on our own just through self-power, self-will, just through discipline, through hunkering down. And do not hear me saying that discipline is not important and that we shouldn't take every step that we can to try to, to try to limit the effects of our sin. But if you think that just because you're type A and driven that you can beat this thing, right? You are, you are trivializing the extent to which Jesus had to give himself up to conquer your sin. Do you see in the cross of Christ how serious a problem sin is? It took Jesus' own death to do away with it. And you think that because you hunker down or come up with some new system that you're going to be able to beat it? You're fighting a losing battle if that's what you're thinking. The only key to deliverance, to latching hold of deliverance that Jesus has made for you is to be broken in your sin, to plead with God for grace to fight it because you know from your own experience that you don't have it. Ultimately, if you're driven to conquer your sin through just sheer willpower, then what you're also going to be driven to is probably deflecting blame for when you fail. And maybe what it looks like for you is to sort of shake your fist at God and say, why did you make me this way? Why are you doing this to me? Why aren't you taking this away? As if your sin was God's problem and not your own. The, the only place from which you're going to have any victory is to look to Christ who had to be pierced for you and to see in that uh, an inspiration to call on him for his power to overthrow your sin. That's one side of the coin. But another tendency we have, I think, is to overplay our sin as if it's impossible that we should ever be cleansed from it. And maybe that's more you, that, that you are prone to guilt and sort of wallowing in despair over your sin. Don't you see that that underestimates Jesus' death just as much as thinking you, you've got your sin licked? Ultimately, what you're saying is that Jesus' death is not satisfactory for your sins, that it can't conquer it, that he is not good enough as a priest who is also sacrifice. Ultimately, maybe you resonate with this image of Satan standing beside you and accusing you. And he's always sort of standing over you and pointing out all the ways that you have failed. Look to this image, the image of Zechariah 3, and see that the accuser of God's people has once and for all been cast down. And he's been cast down not because you cleaned up your act enough to not be guilty of what he's accusing you of, but because you have had your filthy garments taken off and you have replaced them with the pure righteousness of Christ who was pierced for your iniquities. That's the message of Zechariah. It's a call to us to honor God by treating him as if he's enough, as if his solution to our problems is the only solution that we need as if we can cut off our idols and not remember them once and for all because we have found the only source of security that we need. That's the promise of Zechariah, and that's the call of Zechariah to us.
this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, please help us. We are weak. We know from experience that we do not have peace and we do not have purity. And so we latch hold to these promises. We claim them by faith. We ask that you'd come and come quickly and find us ready. And we ask in the meantime you would welcome us with open arms with the grace that is always there. That speaks peace to us even in our weakness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.